class after the service is a little bit different to me. But I've just realized that the upside of it is that if I go over in class, I'm not cutting into worship service. So I'm not sure how long we're going to go. We may go a couple hours. I'm just kidding. I want to eat. I want to eat too. Well, as I said before, being at school means that I'm at a different congregation almost every week. And because of that, we don't really we don't really have the opportunity to do like a series or anything like that. If we were to do a series, I'd be picking up places and nobody would know where we are. So generally what I like to do for my class period is I like to go over kind of an isolated text. And what I've been doing lately is I've been going through parables and just trying to get through a single parable in a class time period. And I know that I'm not the smartest one in the room. I know that there are elders in here, there are preachers in here. Um, and so I don't want to be the only one talking. If you've got a comment, if you've got a question, just, just go ahead and blurt it out. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. If you'd like to, you can. The parable that I want us to look at today comes from Matthew chapter 22, if you'd like to be turning over there. Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to look at the parable of the wedding feast. This is a parable, at least for me, um, it's one I was somewhat familiar with, you know, I at least know it by name, but it's not one I had really studied before preparing this material. Laying out kind of the context for what's going on leading up to this parable, this is the last week of Jesus' ministry. So you've had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, you have uh, uh, Jesus over, overturning the money changers' tables in the temple. He's cleansed the temple for a second time. Um, and He also cursed the fig tree. And after He does all of these things, the Pharisees come to Him and ask Him, by what authority are you doing all of this? What gives you the right to do all of this? And we'll remember, He doesn't really answer them. Instead, he gives him a counter question and he says, Okay, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing this. If you'll tell me this, what authority does John baptize by? Is it under man's authority? Is he just doing it because he wants to do it and, and he didn't get this from God? Or is this on God's authority? Meaning that it's really something that's sacred that we ought to be involved in. And they couldn't answer him. They knew if they said uh, it's from God that they, didn't, they weren't obeying what John said. And so that they would be, they would be uh, realized as hypocrites. And if they said it was from man, well, the people knew that John the Baptist was a prophet. So they were stuck and they were in a dilemma. And it's on the cusp of this conversation about authority that Jesus gives this parable of the wedding feast. And He shows them there's an authority that you ought to be submitting to that you're not submitting to. Alright, so that's kind of the background leading up to this parable. I want to start off and uh, would... Do you all generally read in Bible class to people? All right, would somebody mind reading uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 3? And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. All right, thank you. All right, so right off the bat, we see that this is a kingdom parable. And... I'll just ask, what does that mean? What is a kingdom parable? Yeah, right. That just means that this is a parable that relates something about the characteristics, about the nature of the church. And so as we read this, we need to keep this in mind, that what we're reading, it's, it's in an illustration, right? But this is about the church. Um, the church frequently throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament as well, is 
related to as the bride of Christ. We see the people of God represented as the, the wife, the bride of Christ. We see this in the book of Hosea. Um, you remember the children of Israel, they had been unfaithful to God. And to illustrate this, God said to Hosea, I want you to marry uh, this prostitute. And all the trouble that came from that was to illustrate this is what it's like for God being married to Israel. In the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, we read all of these uh, ways in which a, a husband and wife ought to treat one another. This is how a husband and wife ought to behave. And in verses 31 and verse 32 of Ephesians 5, it says, For this reason shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So this language that's being used in this parable, this is a marriage feast. A master made a marriage feast for his son. This is pretty familiar to them. This is pretty familiar language. So it says that there were these people, they were called to this wedding feast. Who would these people be? These people that were initially called to the wedding feast. Right, I heard somebody say it. These would be Jews. In the Old Testament, the Jews were God's people. Um, but in a sense, we're all called, aren't we? In Matthew 11, starting in verse 28, it says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Under the old law, the Jews were specifically the people that God had called, that God had made His people. But even under the old law, everybody in a sense was called, weren't they? Think about the city of Nineveh. Right. They were in sin and God sent a prophet. He sent Jonah to them and said, repent. You may recall that there was a process under the old law where somebody that was a Gentile, right, somebody that was not part of God's people, they could become a proselyte. They would have to, uh, if you were a man, you'd have to be circumcised and then you'd have to submit yourself to the law of the Jews. But if you saw the Jewish people and you said, you know, we've got our gods and they don't really do anything, but this is, this is real, like Rahab did. You could become essentially a Jew. And so everybody is, in a sense, called. Um, would somebody read verses 4 through 6 of Matthew 22? 4 through 6. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. And all things are ready coming to the marriage. But they made light of it went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. All right, thank you. So we see here that the Jews, they were the first ones that were called, but the Jews rejected the invitation. In fact, they, they very harshly rejected the invitation. So we've seen that this is a kingdom parable. So this pertains to things or this is, is in regard to things that pertain to the church. So essentially what these people are rejecting, they're rejecting the church. They're rejecting being in Christ. And as was mentioned before we uh, did our giving, Ephesians uh, 1 and verse 3, it says that all spiritual blessings are found in Christ. So what are some of the things that the Jews are rejecting by rejecting this invitation? What are some of the blessings that we can think of that are found in Christ? Yeah, salvation, right? That's probably the biggest one. Um, Ephesians, or excuse me, 1 John 5 and verse 13 tells us that 
uh, eternal life. Let me just go over there and read that. I don't have this reference down. 1 John 5 and verse 13. If I can find it. These things I have written unto you, that ye may know that you have eternal life, unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God. So this is something that is exclusive to people that are in Christ. And by rejecting this, they're basically saying, I'm not worried about eternal life. That's not something I, I really want. It's not something I need. What are some other blessings we can think of? What are some other things that we have in Christ that the world does not have? Yeah, forgiveness of sins. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. Some others that I just thought of. I mean, there are many, many that we could list. Uh, while we're on earth, right, we have peace. We'll certainly have peace beyond anything we have here in heaven. But Philippians 4 and verse 7 says that we have a peace, or we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Matthew 6 and verse 33, it tells us that God cares for us in providentially. <laughs> We don't have to respond to God's invitation. God doesn't force us to be obedient to Him. It, it's just that. It's an invitation. We can take it or we can leave it. But when we reject God's invitation, these are all the spiritual blessings. I mean, we could really spend the rest of this class period just talking about the blessings that we have in Christ. And all of these things are what we're rejecting when we reject the invitation. And it's the same thing that the Jews were rejecting then. Mark 8 and verse 36, it says, For what would profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And this is essentially what was going on. God had offered the Jews all these spiritual blessings. He had offered them salvation. And what they said was, you know, this idol worship that the heathens around me, that they've got going on, that looks kind of better than what God's offering me. That looks like it's going to be a lot more fun. That looks like it's going to be a lot more enjoyable. This fornication that's involved in that, all these, these sins, that looks better to me than what God has offered. And that's what we say to God. We are exchanging our souls for just the things around us, the things of the world. All right, so it says in our passage, it says that servants were sent out to, uh, to invite these people. Who are these servants? Since we're dealing with the Jews in the Old Testament right now, who are the people that brought the message of God primarily to the Jews? Prophets. Yeah, exactly. This is the prophets. In Acts 7 and verse 52, a passage we just read said that these people, they spitefully treated and killed these servants. In Acts 7 and verse 52, it says, which of the prophets, this is, uh, uh, I believe, Stephen speaking to... Um, the Jews, he's giving his sermon right before he's stoned. And he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. In Matthew 21 through 24, we're in Matthew 22 right now, you've got several parables in there. And in, I think it may be all of those parables, but at least in several of those parables, Jesus talks about the treatment of the Jews toward the prophets. And in the parable, I'm trying to think of which one it is, the parable of the, the wine press, right, where you've got the master and he's got a wine press and he sends in his servants. 
In that parable, um, the master, he sends in his servants one after another, and the Jews in this, in this parable, the people that are working in the vineyard, they kill them. And the master says eventually toward the end of that parable, he says, you know what, if I send my son in because he's my son, they'll respect me or they'll respect him and they won't kill him. He'll be able to get his mission done. And it says that those people in the vineyard, they killed him. And after Jesus told that parable, it says that the, the Jews that were there, the scribes and the Pharisees, right, it says they sought to lay hands on him. Jesus is just telling this parable saying, all your, all your ancestors, this is what they did to the prophets, and the same thing's going to happen to me. And right after he said that, they tried to kill him. Right then and there. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? But this is historically throughout the Bible, this is how the Jews treated the prophets. In chapter 23, starting in verse 29, it's kind of a lengthy reading, but I want to read 29 through 38. Jesus is condemning these people for their treatment uh, throughout the Old Testament of the prophets. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had lived in the day of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes, some of them, and you will kill and crucify some of them, and you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous bloodshed of the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barak, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar." Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So what the scribes and the Pharisees were saying, I mean, they, they knew the Bible, right? They knew the Old Testament. They knew how the, the people had treated the prophets. They said, you know what, if, if that had been us... If we had lived back then, we wouldn't have treated them that way. We would have responded to their message. And Jesus is kind of saying, you're going to get your chance. I'm going to send to you more prophets. I'm going to send to you wise men. And we know how the prophets and the early Christians, we know how the apostles, we know how they were treated, don't we? We know that they suffered the same way that the prophets in the Old Testament did. And so they had their chance, and they didn't live up to that. We can do the same thing today. I think we have a tendency to kind of say that the same things that the scribes and the Pharisees did, don't we? We look at what happens in the Bible, we look at the really harsh treatment of God's people, and we say, you know, if I was there, if I was one of the Jews that was wandering in the wilderness, uh, I wouldn't have complained. If I was one of the Jews, I wouldn't have, have treated the prophets this way. We have a chance, just like the scribes and the Pharisees did, we have a chance really to live up to that today. Um, when, we are, when we take action against people who speak the truth, when we rebel against the message, um, we're really doing the same thing. I know a preacher back home, or at least kind of close to back home, who preached the truth about social drinking. And because of that, some of the members didn't like it. And so they kind of had some sway with the elders. It's not supposed to be that way, but oftentimes it is. They went to the elders about that, and eventually that guy was fired because he was pre preaching the truth on social drinking. 
we can do the same thing that the Jews did. We can do the same thing that the scribes and Pharisees did. We may not get to the point of killing somebody, but it's essentially the same thing. We, somebody is preaching the truth, and we rebel against that. And because they're preaching the truth, we want the worst for them. We want them to be silenced. We can do essentially the same thing that they're doing, and we need to be careful about that. Okay, so it says about the feast, it says... Before we, before we move on, are there any comments, any questions? Yeah, I like that from Luke 16, from the uh, rich man and Lazarus uh, from the grave. Uh, he mentions there in uh, 16 and uh, 28, it's interesting along the lines there. For I five brethren to testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Here's what Abraham says unto them. Abraham said unto them, They have Moses and the prophets. But they hear them, and he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded by one rose from the grave. So if you didn't hear what he just said, he went to uh, uh, Luke and talked about the the um, account of the rich man and Lazarus, and there the rich man, he wanted to come to them from the dead and say, you know, so that they would hear him and so that they would uh, repent. And, and the point there is we need to listen to what's in the Bible. God's provided enough for us, right? And it's pretty similar to what Jesus said, right? He was, I believe he was in Jerusalem. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong there. And they were kind of clamoring for a miracle. They had heard about all the things that he did, and he said... A wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign, but I'm not going to give you any sign except the sign of Jonah. And he's referring to his eventual, you know, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But the point there is, uh, we've got all the signs we need. We've got what we need in order to be faithful, in order to believe. We don't need additional signs. So it's a good point. I appreciate that. All right, going back to our parable, if there are no other comments... It says, all things are ready, come to the feast. Or that's, that's the song we sing. He says, all things are ready. This is a kingdom parable. Is, let me just scroll down to where I actually am. Has the kingdom come? Yes, absolutely. People, uh, premillennialist, would have us believe, they would teach us that Jesus came to establish an earthly kingdom and that he really wasn't anticipating the kind of rejection that the Jews were going to have. And so because of that, I mean, he didn't necessarily anticipate being crucified. He thought he was going to reign on earth as, a, as an earthly king. Um, the church was kind of set up as a plan B, right? And that Jesus still intends to come back and set up his kingdom. In Mark 9 and verse 1, Jesus says to those people there, he says, some of these people living in his day would not die until they see the kingdom come with power. Brethren, the kingdom has come, and we could spend the entire class, I and mean, we could go through the Bible, nearly every page of the Bible refutes premillennialism. Jesus did set up His kingdom, and it's the church. Jesus didn't fail to set it up, and it's going to be here sometime in the future. We're in the, we're in the kingdom. Galatians 4 and verse 4 it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the wall. When the fullness of time had come. It's not the case that uh, God had anticipated something different happened. God knew exactly what was going to happen. 
It was prophesied in the Old Testament. We may think of, uh, I believe it's Psalm 21 that talks about Jesus' crucifixion. God knew exactly what was going to happen. The church isn't a plan B. The church is the kingdom. The church is the plan. Um, we, could, we could look at numerous verses to, to talk about that. But even in, just in this parable, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like this. If the kingdom is something that we don't even have any kind of part of, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus both said, they said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is something that you can almost reach out and touch. It's going to be here soon. It's something that's going to be here in your lifetime. And this parable here illustrates how the kingdom is going to operate. All right, so we see here that the Jews are punished. Or actually, in verse 7, would somebody read that? Um, Matthew 22 and verse 7. All right, thank you. So this has to do with the kingdom. It's, we see the, the Jews in the Old Testament, they rejected God, and because of that, they were punished. People are somewhat conflicted on what this punishment may be. Um, there are some people that would say maybe this is the punishments that the Jews received in the Old Testament. Um, as we think through the Old Testament, there was kind of a cycle, wasn't there? kind of started with the judges. The people would be obedient to God for a little while, and then they would fall away. And because they fell away, God would send somebody to oppress them. They would be oppressed for a while. They would see the error of their ways, and they would repent. And this kind of goes on and on and on, starting at the judges through really the rest of the Old Testament. And some people say maybe this is the kind of punishment that's being talked about here. Um, some people say it could be the destruction of Jerusalem. We could re read about that in Matthew chapter 23. Um, and that's certainly uh, within the broader context of our parable. So perhaps it could be the destruction. Perhaps that's what uh, could be referenced here. In Matthew 10 and verse 15, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, and this is Jesus talking to the Jews, right? Jesus had been preaching to the Jews, uh, performing miracles for the Jews. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. If we think about the time that Jesus was on earth, right? Uh, throughout the Old Testament, they had the prophets. They had signs. They had miracles often. Many of them did. They had reason to believe. But imagine living in the day of Jesus. Probably nobody in all of history had more reason to believe, more reason to be obedient than the Jews in Jesus' day. They had been reading all of their lives about these things that were going to happen, about how Jesus was going to come, and now here He is. He's here. He's performing miracles. He's proving that He is indeed the Son of God, and they rejected Him. And Jesus says, it's going to be, in a day of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, the city that was filled with homosexuals and murderers, really terrible people that God destroyed with fire and brimstone, it's going to be better for them in the day of judgment than it's going to be for these people. And this is what I think, that it may be any number of these things, but this is what I think that this has uh, reference to. The Jews as a whole, certainly not all Jews, but as a whole, they're going to be punished eternally for their rejection of Christ because uh, they rejected God. God's going to reject them, right? God takes the persecution of His saints, of His people, seriously. 
It says here that because uh, these Jews, because these people, they uh, treated these servants spitefully, they eventually killed them. It says He destroyed them. God takes the way we treat His people, the way the world treats His people, He takes it very seriously. In Acts 9 and verse 4, Saul has been persecuting the church, right? It says that he was dragging people off to prison, Christians, and he was consenting to their death. And when Jesus came to Paul on the, or to Saul on the road to Damascus, he said to him, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He, it was personal, right? Just like Jesus said, whenever you do this to the least of my brethren, you do it to me. Whenever you uh, give one of the brethren food, it's like you're feeding me. Whenever you visit one of the brethren, it's like you're visiting me. Jesus says the same way. Whenever you persecute the brethren, you're persecuting me. It is very personal to God when we mistreat Christians. And I think it's personal to God when we mistreat one another. So we need to be careful of that. And on the day of judgment, that will not go unpunished. In the Psalms, sometimes we'll come across an imprecatory psalm. And in those psalms, they're asked the question, they say, how long is this going to go? How long are my enemies going to, going to be able to fight against me? How long are they going to be wicked like this and, and mistreat me without going unpunished? There is a punishment coming for those who mistreat Christians, for those who mistreat God's people. On the Day of Judgment, there is a punishment for that. Are there any comments before we move on to the next portion? How far, like what, what time do we go to? 11, okay, we've got 20 minutes left. Any comments? Would somebody read verses 8 through 10? All right, thank you. So in the first portion of this parable, you had these initial people that were called. You had the Jews. They were called and they rejected the message. And so more servants were sent out to call others. Who are these other people that were called? Gentiles. Yeah, they were the Gentiles, right? Um, Acts 13 and verse 46, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Remember those spiritual blessings that we were talking about a moment ago? It says the Jews, they counted themselves unworthy of those spiritual blessings. They looked at those blessings and they said, I'm not, I don't need that. That's not something I need. And because they rejected it, God looked to somebody else, right? He looked to the Gentiles. There is certainly a sense in which the Jews were replaced by the Gentiles. But there's also a sense, I think, in which we could say the Jews of the Old Testament were replaced by the faithful. Couldn't we? In Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 28, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. He's saying, you're not, you're not my people because you're a race. You're my people because you're obedient, because you do the things that I say. 
Jeremiah 31 and verse 34, it says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saying, or says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Under the old law, if you were born as a Jew, you were kind of born as one of God's people, right? You didn't necessarily know God when you became God's per- one of God's people. You were just born that way. And so people had to be taught, this is what God wants you to do. And he's saying that's not going to be the case anymore. As Christians, we are born into God's kingdom. We're born into God's people through knowledge, right? We have to have a a rudimentary understanding of what God wants us to do to even become a Christian. And so while under the old law it was racial, God had His uh, chosen race that He wanted to really to spread the gospel, the good news of salvation to the Gentile nations. He had a, a chosen race. Today He has chosen His race through obedience. He has chosen those that are obedient to Him. In Acts 10 and verse 34, it says that God shows no partiality. God doesn't care about race. In fact, we say that the Jews were replaced by the Gentiles, and that's certainly true in a sense, but they're faithful Jews as well, right? Or at least in Jesus' day they were. Think of the apostles. We think of Paul. We think of Barnabas, right? There were faithful Jews in that day. God doesn't God doesn't care about race. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, male or female, free or slave. We're all one in Christ Jesus. God's chosen race today is those that are obedient to Him. When people are not willing to accept the gospel, we have an obligation to move on. In this particular parable, uh, God first sent His servants to the Jews. And the Jews rejected it. And because of that, he, he, the wedding was going to be full. There were going to be people at the feast. So he sent out more servants to other people. Under the limited commission, when Jesus sent out his apostles two by two into Jerusalem to preach the gospel, he said to them, when you go to a door and they reject you, he said, brush the dust off your feet. I'm not saying that we can't spend some time working with people, trying to teach them the gospel. We're told that Paul, when he would go into the synagogues, he would plead with people. We certainly should work with people, and we should spend some time with people um, teaching them the gospel. In that parable that we mentioned a moment ago, the one of the, the wine press, right? He sent his servants in multiple times and then sent his son. He really worked with them. But when people blatantly reject the gospel, we need to move on to more fertile soil. We don't need to spend all of our time trying to convert those that are blatantly rejecting the gospel. We need to spend our time uh, in as, as useful a way as we can for the kingdom of God. Are there any other comments before we move on? Any thoughts that we should bring out of this parable? Speaks volumes, just that. Yeah. You know, but we have a choice. 
if we love this world more we love God, then <clears throat> whether we uh, take it to heart or don't take it to heart, you know, we should take it to heart because me and my son was talking about Polycarp and his bravery, as far as I can see in, in secular history, you know, that man was stern and he stood for the for the truth of God's word as far as I I can tell. I know that was at a time where they were going over into the Catholic uh, religion, gradually going over into that. But uh, it's a choice. Mm. God's not going to force us just like with Pharaoh. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> In uh, this past Wednesday, I was at the Lawnville Church of Christ just visiting, and uh, they were having, there was the last day of their VBS, and they... Uh, they were talking about like evolution and um, uh, the fossil records and things like that, and we were talking about why do people, why do people choose to believe that there isn't a God? And we discussed it, and I think that the primary reason is because people don't want to deal with the consequences of there being a God, right? People look at, just like the Jews did, they might not have rejected that there was a God, but they looked at the things in this world and they said, I want that a lot more than I want what God has to offer. And it's the same thing with people today, the same thing with atheists. It's a choice. In Romans 1, it, it kind of outlines the fall of a nation and how things progress worse and worse with sin. But it starts with the suppression of the truth. When we don't want to hear what it is God has to say, we can. We can suppress the truth. We can put that aside and say, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to see this. And we can look to the world. And that's the same thing that the Jews were doing. That's, that's an excellent point. Thank you for that. Any more thoughts before we move on to the last portion of the parable? I'm just wondering about the Jews today. They're God's chosen people. I just wonder how many of the Jews today even follow the Bible. Yeah. Um, I don't know that they can even really determine who is a Jew as far as racially today, right? Because you had the, um, the records for your lineage, you know, like to be a Levite, you really had to trace your lineage back to Levi to make sure that you were really a Levite. All that's been destroyed when the temple was destroyed. So, um, But certainly those that are practicing Judaism, they're not doing what it is that God wants them to do. Because throughout the New Testament, uh, we're told you don't need to be engaging in Judaism anymore. Not that they're even following it properly, but we're told over and over uh, these things, they were like a, a teacher, right? They were like a, a pedagogy that was supposed to lead you to the new law. But now you're supposed to do these things that I've outlined for you. And the Jews rejected that. They wanted to do things the way that they had always done. Um, so certainly they're not, however we look at it, they're not doing the will of God today. Certainly not. Would somebody read verses 11 through 14 of Matthew 22? 22, 11 through 14. And when the king came in to see the he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speaking. Then said the king to the servant, Find him, and then put, and take him away, and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, thank you. 
So it seems in Judaism, right, it seems in this particular culture, when you were to go to a wedding, there was a specific dress code. I mean, it's, it's not very dissimilar to what we have today, right? In a wedding, generally speaking, I know that there's a lot of deviation from it these days, a man will wear a suit and the woman will wear a white dress. That's generally speaking, that's the dress code, right? And they had something similar. They had a dress code for the wedding. What are our special garments in the church? To be a part of this wedding feast, what are our garments? Right, absolutely, to be clothed in Christ. Um, Galatians 3 and verses 26 and following, it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We have got to be clothed in Christ. Revelation 7, starting in verse 13, it says, uh, this is in John's vision, right? He, he is seeing all these things in Patmos, and it says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And from where did they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If we are going to be a part of the kingdom, if we are going to be a part of that wedding feast, our robes have to be white. We have got to be clothed in Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And once we have clothed ourselves in Christ, once we have washed our clothes, it's not one and done either. It's not as though we've got our garments and now we're set, right? Many people in denominations, they teach the concept of once saved, always saved. That once you have been baptized, if that's what it is that saves you, you know, whatever it is that you say in a particular denomination saves you, once you've done that, you're good and you don't need to worry about it. In uh, Revelation, let's see, I've, I've 16 and verse 15, it says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. See, it's not one and done. Once we have washed our, our robes, once we've been clothed in Christ, we can still lose our garments. We can still fall away. We may have had the proper attire to attend this wedding at one point, but we've misplaced it. We've lost it. Or otherwise, we've stained it and it needs to be washed. We are not ready for that feast. So even though we may be prepared at one point, we need to stay prepared because we don't know when the day is going to be. It's going to be like a thief in the night. and We need to make sure that we are ready at all times. You know, this man that wasn't dressed properly, he went all the way to the point of the wedding starting, of the wedding feast taking place before he was caught. We may fool people as far as our authenticity while we're on earth. It could be that people make their way into the church and they seem like they're legitimate and we think they're legitimate. They may fool us, and they're not. Certainly, people have fooled the world. There are those in denominations and people in the world think, yeah, they're the church. They're the ones that are saved. On the day of judgment, when the wedding feast takes place, God will not miss us. God is going to notice those that are dressed properly. If you would turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to read verses 12 through 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 12 through 14.
But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from the desire, an occasion that wherein they glory, may be found out even as we. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, fashioning themselves into apostles of Christ. And to marvel... And no marvel, for even Satan fashions himself as an angel of light. It is no great thing, therefore, if his ministers also fashion themselves as ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. People may be able to fashion themselves. They may look like Christians, but their end is going to be according to their works. God is not going to miss. He's not going to make any mistakes. He's not going to see people that are not dressed properly and look over that. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 um, excuse me, I got the wrong reference here. First Corinthians 4 and verse 5. It says, Wherefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsel of the hearts, and then shall each man have his praise from God. On the day of judgment, people are going to be judged according to their deeds. God's not going to make any mistakes. He is going to notice if you don't have your wedding garment. Then the final statement of the parable, it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. Revelation 19 and verse 9, it says, Blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast. It is a blessing that we have been called, right? We've all been called through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14. But in order to benefit from that calling, in order to receive the blessing of that calling, we've got to answer that call, don't we? I know we don't customarily offer the invitation, um, but we need to consider this. We need to consider, have we answered the calling? Are we a part of those that are invited to the wedding feast? And I think this morning, probably everybody in here is, at least most everybody in here is. But if you aren't, God's going to notice on the day of judgment that you don't have the robe that you ought to have. Also, if you have answered that, if your robes are white, if you are clothed in Christ, you need to be like those servants. There is still room at the wedding feast. There is still room for more. And if you have been clothed in Christ, you need to go out there and bring the invitation to others. We need to make sure that we bring as many people with us to that wedding feast as we possibly can. We need to be as great an influence for the kingdom as we can. We've got two minutes left. Are there any comments before we close this morning? Any thoughts on the parable? If there are no other thoughts, I appreciate your... Attention, appreciate the, uh, the comments, the reading. Thank you for your time.